0: Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Uh, please open with me to the Book of Judges, Chapter Twenty. You know, the reason we read that particular passage is it 's the backdrop of the the Old Testament law in which uh, Israel was supposed to be following during this time period of the judges and carefully obeying and listening to and carefully uh, applying it to their lives and to the lives of those who are living in the promised land. And, and we will see today, as the, the book of Judges closes, we, we will see an absolute train wreck of an inability to carefully follow God's word. And the same would be true of our lives, your life and my life, when we neglect to follow God and follow his word and, and trust in Him. Uh, So we are going to be finishing this dark book of Judges, chapter 20 and 21 today, and there will be, hopefully, a collective sense of relief of, thank goodness, this dark book is finally over. But I am also praying that in the midst of closing out the book of Judges, we, we actually learn the lessons that God wants to teach us. Amen? Like, Don't you think that's probably good for us to be reminded during these dark days? God, please teach us what you are trying to teach us right now so that we don't have to learn it again. Amen? Uh, Next week, we're going to be starting a six-week series on the church. What is the church? How does the church grow? What is, what's our purpose as the church? We're going to look at particular scriptures that unpack who we are and what we're supposed to be doing as a church. We need to be reminded, especially in this, as we're entering into a new season of just life and living in this crazy world and crazy existence, who we are. And we need to be reminded what we're called to be in the midst of this dark, world. So we'll be starting that for six weeks uh, just on, on unpacking of the church and everything that, that God intends for the, His church to be. And if you believe it or not, uh, at the end of that six weeks, it's Palm Sunday. Don't blink because uh, by the time that uh, you do, you'll wake up and it'll be Resurrection Sunday and we will be uh, full into spring. Doesn't it seem that life just does not slow down it doesn't It seem like life is just kind of exponentially getting faster, maybe it's just me, but it really seems like it was just yesterday that my family and I were packing up our stuff on the, in Chicago and uh, heading out to this Wild West adventure in the, the city of Reno, and it seems like just yesterday that we were going through that, but as I'm looking back at the calendar and I'm seeing the growth of my children, uh, that was five years ago, the coming this April. Uh, We did some math and we realized that my son Judah, who's nine years old now, he has now officially spent more time in Nevada than he has in the Midwest. So I think that officially makes our family Nevadans, amen? (laughs) Amen. This truly is home, and there's no place that me and my family would rather be in this crazy season that, that God has entrusted to us as a church. Uh, There's no place that we would rather be than here with you. And we are certainly thankful to be unpacking the scriptures moving forward that clarify for us who we're supposed to be as the church. And we're really, I am really looking forward to that. Uh, Anniversaries are important. Uh, Anniversaries, especially within the marriage context, are are very important. Uh, I had a wise older pastor when I was a younger minister come alongside of me, and he'd say, Carl, birthdays are given. All you have to do is stay alive and you get another birthday. But Carl, anniversaries are earned. Any married couples resonate with that? Birthdays are given, you just need to stay alive, but anniversaries are earned because you need to stay together. And I know in our marriage, if it were not by but by the grace of God, there go we, we would not have celebrated 15 years this past summer. And but by the grace of God, we would not have have seen uh, even moving forward uh, the hope for future anniversaries moving forward. It's difficult to earn an anniversary because it's the, the work of two flawed human beings that are attempting to live life in unis, in unity with one another and continue to make progress and, and not just simply grow stale together, but to continue to pursue things together. And we're flawed human beings. If uh, I, I know if I had it my way, if uh, I indulged myself in the fullness of my sin and, and I desire and I, and I lived by my own law and did what was right in my own eyes, I would spend all of our money as soon as the the paycheck hits the bank account. Any spenders in here we don 't call ourselves spenders; we call ourselves investors. We invest in the moment. We invest in people. We invest in experiences. We invest in I Well, not toys. Uh, we invest in things. My wife, on the other hand, if she had it her way, we would never leave the house. We would work from home. All of the bank account money would just continue to compound interest upon interest. We would get our bank statements back, and we would see the the straight-up curve of how high our pile of money be, would become, and we would be like Scrooge McDuck in ducktails taking di- a diving board into a, a an entire bathtub full of gold coins. Sure, we wouldn't have... Clothes that were it, were up to date since the Reagan administration. Sure, we wouldn't have a vehicle that, that that was made in this century. But boy, we would have a boatload of cash if we did what was right solely in my wife's eyes. But praise be to God the the king of the Anderson household is not Carl's spending habits. And the king of the Anderson household is not my wife's saving habits. The king in the Anderson household is Jesus Christ. And regardless of how we desire to indulge ourselves by God's grace, we continually want to humble ourselves under this word that God has given to his people to live lives that accord with the grace that we have been given. And what that means is sometimes for me, it means not investing in that special moment with my children and giving them the chocolate shake that they want. And other times for her, it means, you know what, we're going to loosen the belt a little bit because we've been kept up at home for weeks upon weeks and we just need to let our hair down a little bit because Carl is not king, Andrea is not king, Jesus is king, and he teaches us both biblical stewardship and radical generosity. And we're going to see today in the book of Judges what happens when God's people just live independently of one another and independently of God and indulge themselves by being, doing what is right in their own eyes. If Andrea and I just fully indulged ourselves, if we only did what was right in our own eyes, it wouldn't be long before it would escalate into major conflict, would it not? I don't need to share with you how many marriages have been train wrecked simply because they can't come to terms on how to handle money. And it escalates into conflict. When we fully indulge in our sin, we reveal to uh, the world and to one another that our sinful pleasures are our own king. We're ruled by our sinfulness and we do what is right in their own eyes. And this is what happens in the book of Judges. The people have strayed away from God's word to such a degree that it is an absolute train wreck. And it closes just looking at the carnage of the damage that has been done in the people of God when they just simply to say, we're going to fall asleep at the wheel because we need a nap. There's a massive conflict that we are going to see. But through it, even through the worst experiences of life, through the darkest picture of sinfulness that God gives to us in His Word, even through the worst experiences of life, the grace of the King, the true King, the King of Kings, the goodness and the grace of the King is available to those who repent and humble themselves under His authority and the authority of of his word. Today we're going to see two spiritual truths that help us turn away from our sinfulness, turn away from being the king of our own lives and find the true grace, the grace of the king. Last week we closed the story. The story closed in a very gruesome account and I'll give the same caveat this week that Pastor Glenn gave last week as last week was a PG 13 message and it just continues in that vein going from just one gruesome account to now a nationwide account of brutality. So, final warning if you want to get your children to kids ministry, now is the time to quietly uh bring them over there, but uh we're going to continue in the same vein that we were at last week. If we remember in chapter 19, the the the, the story closed with this gruesome account of a levite whose con- levite and concubine who were staying in the house of an old man in gibeah and uh, a mob of angry men came knocking on the door demanding that the man come out so that they might sexually violate him the man in true courageous fashion says here's my concubine take her they he hands over his concubine to them. They rape her for the entire evening and she crawls nearly dead to the threshold of the door, and the Levite opens up the door in the morning, finds her lying like that on the threshold, throws her on his horse and begins to traveling home. As he approaches home, he notices that she is dead here. She may or may not have been dead at that point. He cuts her up into 12 pieces and FedExes her to the 12 tribes of Israel. Some nice light Bible stories before bed. He does this as a protest. He does this as a, as to try to send a shock-waving message throughout the nation of Israel, and we're going to see how the nation of Israel responds. And you're going to see that, man, humanity has not changed at all. Look at verse 20. It starts here. Then all of the people of Israel came out, from Dan to Beersheba. Now, pause here. Remember back in chapter 18? Remember what happened with Dan and Micah in chapter 18? Micah steals his mom's silver. His mom is proud of his son that gave his, the, gold, or the silver that she stole. He accidentally throws it into the fire, makes an idol. Although it wasn't an accident, it was entirely uh, on purpose. He uh, ordains a priest for his false god shrine that's in his household the tribe of Dan is trying to get an inheritance so they steal his shrine and at the end of chapter 18 uh in the in the tribe of Dan they have an entire tabernacle a shrine set up uh for an entire priesthood the false priesthood set up where they are worshiping a carved image in Dan and then just the story ends No strong reaction from the Israelites. No, how in the world could this happen in the nation of Israel? Just one tribe is off doing their deviant Yahvism, worshiping God in a way that is not prescribed under the law, committing idolatry actively. And now, the narrator tells us in 20, after this gruesome FedEx goes throughout the entire entire nation, Dan shows up because he has a moral leg to stand on right now. Dan, From Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all of the peoples and all of the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us how did this evil happen? They respond by gathering the biggest gathering that the nation has seen throughout the entire book of Judges. We've seen de escalation or an escalation of devolving morality throughout the entire book. Yet no outrage, no anger, no frothing. They cry out to God frequently, but no large gathering of all of the tribes of people, but now a body part they receive in the mail and their morbid curiosity is piqued. They don't really care about justice. They just want to know, how did this thing happen? What in the world went on here? The Levite is using clickbait throwing up a picture of a gruesome car crash because he knows that people are going to click the link to know more information on it. 400,000 people gather. How did this this evil thing happen? Hmm? Verse 4, the Levite captures the audience. He's got the crowd, 400,000 people strong showing up to see me. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered him, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me, and they surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead." So I took hold of my concubine and cut her to pieces and sent her throughout all the country as the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed an abomination and an outrage in Israel. Behold, you, people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and your counsel here. Is his account really that accurate? I think he's manipulating some of the facts here. Sure, they came against him. They did want to violate him. But he didn't stand in the way of protecting his wife, did he? He conveniently leaves out the fact that he just pushed her out the door and let them do whatever they wanted to her to satisfy them so that he did not get harmed. This is no testimony of a courageous man of God who is standing up for justice. This is a man who sees all of the evil and he, he sees an opportunity. I can use this gruesome event to draw a crowd and get justice done in my own eyes. Seeking personal revenge, leaving out important facts, and riling up the crowd. Give counsel and your advice here. In the text that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 13, it talks about grievous sin of idolatry and how to investigate idolatry. And it says very specifically that they are to carefully inquire of those who are performing such sins. There's a due diligence prescribed in the law so they don't just simply get roused by one person's testimony. And we see how bankrupt Israel is at this particular time because we see precisely how they, how easily they are manipulated by the words of the charlatan, this morally compromised, proposed spiritual leader Levite in the midst of Israel. Look at what the people do. And all of the people, verse 8, Arose as one man saying, none of us will go out of his tent. None of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibba. We will go against it by lot and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people that they, that when they come out, we may, they may repay Gibba and for Benjamin of Benjamin for all of the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all of the men gathered against the city, united as one man. Did they send a team to investigate? No. There, An injustice was done, a murder happened, and they are outraged and they're out for blood. Sweet. Now we have an outlet for all of this anger in our lives. Now we have something to blame for why our life is so terrible. And now we can take it out fully on our very own brothers, the Benjamites, and the people who did this. Verse 12, "'The tribes of Israel sent men throughout all of the tribe of Benjamin, saying, "'What evil is this that has taken place among you? "'Now therefore give the men up, the worthless fellows in Giba, that we may put them to death "'and purge evil from Israel.'" But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Benjaminites are like, if they're not going to get a fair trial, like we're not going to give them up. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. All right, it's full-on civil war time. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities that day 26,000 men who drew the sword. Besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, all who mustered 700 chosen men. All of these 700 chosen men were like navy seals, left-handed. Every one of them could sling a stone at, the hair, at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. They are ready to throw down. Benjamin says, says we are going to protect our people. This is our property. It's our right. You're going to come and kill us. We're going to stand against you. We don't care if you're our brothers. It's our right to be able to stand here. We're going to do what's right in our own eyes. We're not going to hand over anybody. We're not going to have an investigation. We're we're not going to hold ourselves responsible for this murder. And, And you obviously aren't going to do it as well. So here we go. And notice, where, where's God been all the way up until this point? Exactly. I've seen some shrugs. I don't know. That's exactly what it. God is out of the picture, and that's intentional from the narrator to show you how the sinfulness of the people of Israel's hearts is just escalating upon itself and how little they care for God nor God's word. But now they're about to go to war, so they decide, you know what? Let's ask God about what's the best military strategy. Verse 18, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God. Now, do they say, God, is this a good idea? God, is this how we should be operating as your people? And is this what your law says that we should do? Look at what they ask. Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? They skip over all of the prescriptions of the law, all of the things that that God had prescribed for how to go about purging Israel of evil. They're just acting out of their outrage and they want to get this thing done. So they ask God, what's going to be the best military strategy? And the Lord says all right you're committed to this so he the lord replies judah shall go up first this should have triggered right in their mind the opening chapter of judges when they were actually doing the right thing in cleansing the land and taking the inheritance that was given to them and and doing the thing that god's law prescribed and and when they sought god in that instance god said judah should go first And in that instance, as the book opens, Judah still didn't follow through with full faith. He said, when God said Judah should go up, Judah went and got his brother Simeon and went and fought against the Canaanites. But look at how motivated Judah is now. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against Giba and the people of Benjamin came out of Giba and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. They lose. They lost the battle. God sent them to lose because they were so dead set on this and did not inquire of God, of whether they should do it or not. And God is teaching them a lesson. They lose. Verse 22, But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. All right? Reset, recycle. We're going at it again. Verse 23. And the people of Israel went up and now they're realizing they might not be in the best spiritual place. So they just don't go up and ask who should go first. Now they're going up and they wept before the Lord and they inquired, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? At least now they're questioning their own motives. Should we do this again? Should we fight them again? As they're weeping, and the Lord responds, no, you're, you're set on this. You've decided in your heart that this is what you want to do. Go up against them. So the people of Israel, verse 24, came against the people of Benjamin a second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. And all of these men who drew the sword, another 18,000 valiant soldiers perished. Israel lost again. Verse 26. Now all of the people of Israel, the whole army went up to Bethel and they wept. So now they're realizing maybe this wasn't the best idea. They wept. They sat there before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now they're upping their their spiritual game saying, man, this is not going well. Let's fast and pray and offer sacrifices and worship. Verse 26, 7. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the ark of the covenant of God was there for those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers? The people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? They're finally asking the right question. God, is this even right to do? God, uh, have, have we completely missed the boat on this. Shall we stop? And notice in the two previous things, telling Judah should go up first, and then secondly, go out tomorrow, go go out again. Now, the Lord responds, go up for tomorrow, I will give them into your hand. God didn't promise victory in the other two places. Now he promises you're going to be successful. They go out the next day, they set an ambush, they overtake the men of Gibeah. They overtake the people of Benjamin. They slaughter everyone except for 600 people, 600 Benjamites who hide themselves in a cave, the Rock of Ramon, for four months. Then it, the, the men of Israel turned, verse, uh, verse 48, And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin, struck them with the edge of the sword in the city, the men and the beast, and all that were found, and all of the towns that they found were set on fire. One of the most difficult diagnoses that anybody can receive from a medical professional or a doctor is, you have cancer. Was probably the three most haunting words that you could receive about your own health. You have cancer. Cancer is an illness that in many cases, without proper treatment, it can be terminal. But how foolish would it be of someone to receive the bad news of a cancer diagnosis, go home, open up their computer and say, and type in, how do I cure my cancer? See a bunch of listings of websites, go on to the very first one, just impulsively do whatever that first person says. Just be foolish. Follow whatever advice seems right that you can click on at first regardless of credentials or medical training or expertise or understanding of how cancer works, just, I'm going to follow whatever treatment plan I think is right, it's going to cure me. It would be tragic. It could be fatal. It could prevent the, the person from actually being cu- cured. Brothers and sisters, God's Word deals with Sin. It deals with specific sin and gives specific prescriptions for it. And it's so unfortunate and borderline frustrating for me to see many Christians believe whatever cleverly articulated testimony that is put forth by peddlers of religion And think, oh, I have this issue in my life. Well, this person says that I should do this. I'm going to do that. Well, I did that and it didn't work. It must be my fault. Brothers and sisters, we act just like Israel when we fail to carefully assess serious accusations without diligence and care that God's Word prescribes. One of the primary ways that this happens is when we see one sin, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, see one sin inside of the church or outside of the church, and then blame everything else on that particular sin. Well, it's racism's fault that God's church is so messed up. If there weren't so many racists, that our church would be purified. It's the LBGTQ's agenda's fault that the church is so messed up. If it weren't for that ungodly agenda, then God's church would be so much more purified. It's greed's fault. People are just too into the money. Acquiring things for themselves. If people were just more generous and not so greedy, everything in the church would be fixed. Brothers and sisters, we don't treat irritable bowel syndrome the same way we treat lung cancer. Different sins manifest themselves in different ways and they all need to be treated. Don't get me wrong. All of those things that I listed can be cancerous and spread like gangrene. Timothy would, or Paul would instruct Timothy, if they're not dealt with, But brothers and sisters, if we just take out a flamethrower and just indiscriminately just start shooting fire all over the place, a lot of people are going to get damaged. Brothers and sisters, may we be careful. May we not be like the Levite. Or may we not be like Israel who listened to the Levite. Assemble the whole mob to respond to one particular sin. But make no mistake, we need to call the church and one another to repentance of specific sins when it is in her midst. But we must be precise. We must be judicious, clear, focused, especially when we're dealing with grievous public sin. And because Israel did this, because they just hastily went to war on their brothers in Israel. They wiped out, nearly wiped out an entire tribe because of the sin of the small mob of worthless men. Now that they find themselves, though, in a pickle, because like the story of Jephthah, who sacrifices his virgin daughter because of a rash vow, the entire nation of Israel made a pact, made a vow to not give uh, their daughters in marriage to the tribe of Benjamin. And now there's 600 men that are left, and there's no wives for them. And there's make a vow saying, we're not going to give our daughters. Even before they went to war, they made this vow saying, we're not going to give our daughters to anybody in the tribe of Benjamin. So Israel now carefully turns into legalists who carefully follow their own vows. But again, continue to neglect God's word. At some point before the battle, they make this vow, no one shall give their daughter in marriage to Benjamin, but there's now no women and 600 men who survived in Benjamin and now they're threatened with extinction. Do you know what would be really useful for Israel right now in this situation, this predicament and this pickle that they find themselves in? You know what would be super helpful, very useful for them? the Bible. God's Word. God's Word has outlined specific prescriptions for if you make a rash vow, here is how you redeem that rash vow. If you, even if you open up to, and you don't, you don't have to go there. But it's in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter five. It basically says, if you find yourself, or your brother, or your tribe, or your, makes a rash, makes a vow, and you realize, man, that was a dumb vow, you acknowledge your sin, you confess it, you offer a sin offering at the temple. The priest makes the sacrifice, and you're free from the rash vow. Everything that happens in the rest of the book, chapter 21, could have been avoided just by knowing the Bible, knowing God's word. Verse chapter 21, Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah not uh, not one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came out to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. They lifted up their voices. They wept bitterly. But look at their weeping. They said... O oh Lord, God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? This is not a prayer of faith. This is not a prayer of repentance. This is not a prayer of confession. This is a prayer where they are blaming God for their predicament. How could you let this happen, God? Now one of us are going to be cut off, and we made this rash vow, and it's your fault I think this is triggering all of the parents. (laughs) It's your fault my room's not clean. Verse 4. The next day the people arose early. They built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of the tribes of Israel did not come up from the assembly of the Lord? Notice, did God respond to their request? Why did this happen? Nope. God's silent. And His silence is deafening. So they ask him which of the tribes of Israel did not come up from the assembly of the Lord. They take matters into their own hands. They get pragmatic about it. For they had taken another great oath concerning him who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. You don't come to worship, you die. People who are online, we love you. Not making that vow today we love you. We we are thankful for you. Uh, you can stay home if you're sick, and we're glad to pipe this in. And if you're not, if, or even if you're watching this much later and you didn't show up to worship, we're not making any rash vows like this, okay? Just so we're clear. They made a rash vow. You don't show up to worship, you die. <laughs> you just see, it's like, goodness gracious, what are these people thinking? But at the same time, you're like, i uh, Yeah, I I find myself in the midst of being caught up in a bunch of frenzied activity similar to this. And I mean not putting people to death. All right, I'm going to stop and stick to the script. And the people of Israel, the people of Israel had compassion uh, for Benjamin, their brother. Aw, isn't that sweet? And they said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give any of... Them any wives for our daughters. Verse eight, and they said, <laughs> "There is one tribe of Israel that did not. It, what is the one tribe that is from Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizvah? And behold, they took attendance of everybody who was there. No one had come up from the camp of Jabesh Gilead to the assembly of the Lord. Who knows? Maybe they were sick. Maybe they couldn't have enter into the assembly. Who knows? Maybe they their alarm didn't go off and they slept in that day." But when the people were mustered, verse 9, Behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead were there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there, and they commanded, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. See how it just continues to escalate. One poor decision after another. And this is what you shall do. Every male... And every woman that has lain with a male, you shall harem. Devote them to destruction. Verse 12. And they found among them inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, 400 young virgins who had not known a man lying with him. And they brought them to the camp of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Do you see the irony here? They take... The rape of one woman. Respond to that injustice with the injustice of now raping 400 women, taking them from their homes, giving them to husbands that were not theirs. Verse 13, Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Rimen and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned home at this time, and they gave them the women that they had saved alive and the women of Jabesh Gilead. There were not enough for them. Even I can do that math. 600 men, 400 women, that's not enough. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Verse 16, Verse 16, then the elders of the congregation, like, where does the 200 women shortfall? We still have this oath. Well, what are we going to do? And get pragmatic again. They think, I think there's a way that we can maintain our vows and provide for the shortfall. Verse 17 There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that the tribe might not be blotted out from Israel. Verse 18 That we may give them wives. And we cannot give them wives from our own daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, behold, there's a yearly feast to the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, in the south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, go lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and then go out to the land of Benjamin. This is disgusting. There's going to be this party that's happening and the feast to the Lord. And at this feast to the Lord, there's going to be some dancing that's happening. They're not Baptists. There's going to be some dancing at this feast to the Lord. And as the women are, are doing their dance of dance on this road, just every all of the 200 men that don't have wives in Benjamin, just go take one for yourself. It's disgusting. And look at this. They're logical and they're clever and they have an out, a legal loophole. They found a loophole to their oath, verse 22. And when their fathers or their brothers come out and to complain to, the, to us, We will say to them, grant them graciously to us. Let us just take your daughters. Let us just take your wives. Grant them graciously to us, because did we not take for each man a wife, uh, for them his wife in battle? Neither did they give them to you, or else you would now be guilty. Remember what we said? Remember the vow that we made? Now that we've taken them from us and they're our wives, if you don't just let us have them, it's going to be on you. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number and the dancers whom they carried off. And they went and they returned to their inheritance and they rebuilt the towns and lived in them, living unhappily ever after. Verse 24, And the people of Israel departed there from at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance a colossal nationwide walk of shame what have we done the book closes with a thesis statement of that's threaded through the entire book in those days there was no king in israel everyone did what was right in their own eyes This is a book that's just a graphic description of what happens when a dad, God, says to his kids, all right, you're acting like orphans. Go ahead. You don't want to trust and obey me? You don't want to follow what's good and right for you? Have at it. But through it all, through the entire darkness of all of these days in which God's people are acting in the most foolish ways, they're still a family. And God still preserves His children. Even though their sin has set the nation into a spiritual freefall, parents who discipline their children still remain a family. Brothers and sisters, we're living in dark days similar to this book. The book depicts epic leadership failure that has disastrous results upon the entire nation of Israel. I stand before you closing out this book with the challenge that the narrator leaves there was no king in Israel, is supposed to trigger in your mind, who is my king? Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is not your king, it will lead to disastrous spiritual consequences. Last week, we explored just two ways in which we can very easily fall into doing what is right in our own eyes. Listen to the whole message that Pastor Glenn gave. It's online if you'd like. But He just gave the two ways of one. One way is just if we accept the world's view of human sexuality and just adopt it as our own. Begin doing what is right in our own eyes and we begin looking exactly like the world. The other way is if we just refuse stubbornly, rebelliously, to follow the leadership of those that God has placed over us. Glenn did a good job, but that's just the start. I got 10 more. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, but I do have two. Because if we don't deal with these two, as we close out this book and hopefully prayerfully close out this season, we will not have learned what God is trying to teach us in the midst of this dark season. We're going to be talking more about these things as we get into the details of what it means to be the church in our context today. But I do think there's two things that that we need to learn and we need to not fall prey to in being wise in our own eyes. And if we don't learn these things... It'll prevent us from being the church that God desires for us to be. The first thing that I think God is trying to teach us is the dangers of spiritual isolation. And I'm not saying physical isolation, but spiritual isolation. In this day and age when it's become so easy to be physically isolated from other people, it's even more dangerous and more easy and more tempting to be spiritually isolated. To not just lock yourself in your house, but to lock up your heart, not just before other people, but lock up your heart before God. To do what is right in your own eyes, to not even let the king of the universe who loves you and bled for you and died for you, to not even let him into the deep recesses of your soul May we avoid the danger of spiritual isolation. Don't refuse, first and foremost, to talk to God about what you're dealing with and going through. Open up to Him. And secondly, along the lines of spiritual isolation, open up to other brothers and sisters in Christ who are here. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult to let your guard down and truly let somebody else in because they can disappoint you. They could say something that's totally off. They could hurt you even more. They could make things worse. But it is far more dangerous to remain permanently isolated spiritually from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us not fall into the temptation of spiritual isolation. And a second thing that, that I think God is teaching us during this time that we need to learn in order to make, make it into this next season in a healthy manner, is he's teaching us the, the dangers of what I'm going to call biblical assumptionism. I don't think it's a word, but I'm making it up. Biblical assumptionism is assuming that you already know what the Bible says and failing to wrestle with the parts that challenge your very life. It's a cousin to spiritual isolationism because if you are a full-blown biblical assumptionist, you never let God's word penetrate the dark parts of your own heart and life. One of the things that, that is so discouraging, not necessarily with you as a, as, as a church, but what is so discouraging during this time is so easily and quickly, uh, people who profess to be followers of Christ so easily go to sources for truth that are not rooted in God's Word and are not anchored in God's Word. And I believe this that stems from an assumption that, Believers already think that they know everything that there is to know about the scriptures and how it applies to their life, so they seek out teachers that already agree with them. Now, some of us have lived with these nagging dangers for so long that we wouldn't even know how to spiritually open up to somebody even if we tried to receive care. But for you, if if you're in that position, just... You don't have to make a big show of it, but just quietly send an email to one of our pastors, one of our shepherds. Just pull us aside before, yeah, after the service saying, man, I, I've, I've locked myself up. I don't even, and I got a th- lot of things that I need to work through and I don't even know where to start. Can you help me? We might not be the primary contact point person, but we can help move you in a direction towards getting more connected, not just with one another, but connected with God through christ others of us here probably attended church for so long that we assume that our way of life is just biblical because we've gone to church for so long and because of that we can not hear the message of the bible because we built up these assumptions that, that block us from hearing god's word We're going to be talking a lot more about that in these next six weeks as we explore God's intention for his church and what it means to be a follower of Jesus in his church. But right now, you, person in the pew at Sierra Bible Church, you need to answer in your soul, before the king himself, who is your king? if it is Jesus Christ, He will not permit you to be spiritually isolated. He will continue to relentlessly pursue you, either by letting you experience the consequences of your own sin until you come to your senses, or by aggressively coming after you in love because He desires to show you what this life, eternal life, means. He will enter into your loneliness, your isolation, and he will give you true, lasting, eternal life. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He'll challenge our assumptions, and he will not rest until all of his people find their full rest in him. Trust him this morning. Turn to him as your king. Turn away from doing what is right in your own eyes and fully surrender yourself to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace and your goodness. God, I thank you that you give us these graphic depictions of what life looks like apart from you so that we might be shocked into a wake-up call. to see how drastically things can go so poorly if we neglect you. So God, we allow, I ask that you would allow for us to not fall prey to spiritual isolation, to not fall prey to assuming that we just know everything that there is to know about you and your word. That we would humble ourselves before you. We would receive the fullness of your grace. God, that we would open up our hearts to the King who loves us and has died for us, who has given us his word. That we would see your relentless, steadfast love pursuing us so that we might not be isolated forever and away from you. So God, do whatever is necessary inside of our hearts here this morning to draw us to yourself, to draw us to one another, and to allow for your name and your fame and your kingdom to be all that is proclaimed from our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen.